I invite you to take up your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 32. On these Bibles, uh, it is on page 70. And while we're turning there, um, I'll just say uh, just a, cu- a couple things as, by way of introduction. Uh, recent articles in scholarship that I've, that I've, I've been reading um, debate whether parental discipline in the form of uh, spanking is good. I know this is, uh, this is an interesting topic because Time Magazine and CNN in the last two years have published, both have published articles saying it, it is actually a very good thing, this form of discipline, right? But then you have psychology today that says it is not good for any child. And if, if you would ask my mom, not this mom, if you would ask my mom, she would say, yes, it is very good for this child, Right? Spanking was very good. The real debate isn't whether the the physical aspect of it is good or bad. Really, it's the the psychological effect and rather whether the child understands that that, that this discipline and this judgment and this punishment is loving, right? Well, in our passage today in Exodus 32, we do see discipline and judgment and, and punishment but we also see a wonderful example of God's love. So if you turn there with me. Actually, before we turn there, I found this. Did we, did we already? I found this and I thought this was a wonderful picture. It has nothing to do really with, with what we're talking about, talking about. But I thought these people worshiping the golden calf was just really funny. So that's my sense of humor. Let's turn and read from Exodus chapter 32. This is the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. We'll stop there. And as I was reading and, and beginning to think through this passage, I read some commentators who said, Well, look at these Israelites how they have just forgotten God. What a terrible sin. Some people said, look at the disrespect that they have for Moses, their leader. He's going up and they just, they just disrespect him. But if we named one sin in this passage, we would most probably say it's the sin of idolatry. Pretty obvious. Um, where, where, before we go looking further on, let's, let's ask where in the grand narrative of Exodus are we? It's, it's good to kind of get the context. So 40 days ago, before this worshiping of this, this idol, God gave them the Ten Commandments, and he gave them other laws. And then back in Exodus 24, we read that Moses reads all these laws that God gave them. He reads all of them, and then the people respond and say this, all the words of the Lord, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they actually say this twice to make sure it wasn't an accident, right? We fast forward 
we fast forward a month and we come to this passage and those Israelites are immediately, they're worshiping, they're worshiping exactly as God said not to. And it's specifically something that God said, you will never, you should never worship this. Now, uh, for, for, our, for our understanding in the ancient Near East, this, the time when these Israelites were living, people used to worship idols and images, also of, of bull images they'd used to represent in their worship. The Egyptians used the bull to represent one of their gods of fertility. So as we think about this, it shouldn't, it's not really that weird that these Israelites wanted to worship an image. And Aaron just interpreted that as, build us a holy cow, please. We call these syncretistic tendencies or these behaviors of blending, blending religions. And it showed, I just have to point out how deeply embedded this practice of idolatry was against these, these uh, ancient Near Eastern people. We, we might say, okay, the, 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 these Israelites wanted to be like other nations around them and worship an image of a bull, just like the Egyptians did, or, or others. Or we could say they wanted to fashion something to represent Yahweh. It, it doesn't really matter. That the motive, both were idolatry. They both were idolatry, and even idolatry wasn't new to the, the Israelites. I, I don't know if any of you have in your houses or have seen um, the uh, plaques that have the passage of Joshua saying, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you familiar kind of a little bit with what I'm talking about? Before Joshua says that, he actually says to the Israelites, put away those gods that your father served in the region and in Egypt. Get rid of those things you worshipped before. I mean, the point is, the habit of worship and worshipping idols isn't something that they left behind in Egypt. It's just not. So we'll read on at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So, the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked people. What an interesting way to describe a people, a stiff necked people. Listen, this is how it's used in other passages in the Bible. Just over the page of Exodus 33, we read, God saying, I will not go with you up into that beautiful land because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses uses the phrase and he says, understand it's not because of your righteousness, friends, it's not, not, understand, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And even in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 30, Hezekiah decrees, and he says in his decree, do not be a stiff-necked people. 
Do not be a stiff-necked people as your ancestors were. Instead, submit to the Lord. Stiff-necked is just that unique way of God saying, you are a sinful people. Think of it like a euphemism parents use to describe less than obedient children, okay? Oh, Johnny, he's just a, he's just a strong-willed boy, right? You might say that, but what the parrot means is Johnny is less than willing to obey because Johnny, like all of us, is sinful. And if we asked to press Johnny's mother a little bit more, she would, she would probably not have it, find it hard to give us other evidence of Johnny's strong-willed behavior, might she? Last week, Johnny did this, and then he broke that, and then when we were in the grocery store, he, he pitched a fit and held his breath and almost passed out. And, you know, he's just, before whatever he's doing now, he's done many, many other things that were not, right? And that's, in, in the same way, this is exactly true of the nation of Israel. I said that they, they, they engage in idolatry, but this is not the first time that they sin. Maybe this is the first time that we see them engaging in this golden calf worship. But do you guys, do you remember before the stiff-necked things they did? Before crossing the Red Sea, the doubt that they expressed before it was parted? You, don't you recall about not having food in Exodus 16 or water in Exodus 17? Just like Johnny, the nation of Israel was sinful before this moment of idolatry. If you can imagine I have this vision of like a, like a prosecutor bringing for a jury all the evidence that, that says that Israel is guilty of sin, this golden calf, it, it wouldn't be the only evidence she might bring. Indeed, she could bring many more examples. And because of that, we get to this, this verse, this verse 10. I'll, I'll, let's read it now. I'll read it. Leave me alone. This is God speaking. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. One of my uh, professors tells us, don't tell them about Hebrew and Greek because it's nerdy and they don't care. But this, this, this phrase in Hebrew literally says, Leave me alone so that my nose may burn in anger against them and that I might finish them. That my nose may burn in anger against them is just one of the strongest ways uh, in, in Hebrew that you can display rage and fury and ire. God is mad and he is a, he's about to judge them. And any judgment from God is fair and equitable and right. That punishment, whatever it would be, in fact, to utterly destroy them, would fit the crime. We know how Paul says it in Romans 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice sin. God, as we can turn back and read in Exodus 20, is a jealous God. In Exodus 23, he says, I will not acquit the guilty. I will not let their sin go. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, he's a, he, was the, he's, he was the president of the seminary that I go to now, and a Dutch theologian says, says this, The righteousness and holiness of God, which can brook no sin, certainly cannot simply overlook open defiance to his infinite majesty. 
God hates sin with a divine hatred, and his whole being reacts against it. That's true of idolatry, but it's also true of lying and coveting. You see, the righteousness and holiness of God, as as Burkhoff put it, cannot overlook murder or even those who have hateful thoughts and intentions in their heart. God's righteousness and holiness cannot overlook theft or even sexual immorality. It cannot overlook those who do not honor their mother and their father, and God's righteousness and holiness cannot gloss over any sin. Here, in this passage, it's idolatry, but it could have been, it really could have been almost anything else, and God would have had every right to say, let my anger burn against them, because As we all know, a sin is a sin is a sin. And this situation with the golden calf is as as valid a reason as any for God to exercise his justice. And this is is the first point that I want to make this evening. It is when there is sin, it it is always an occasion for God's justice. This is an occasion. When there's sin, it's an occasion for God's justice. Every sin... I'll say two things. Every sin is a defiance against God. It can be idolatry. It can be fornication. It can be false witness. Every sin is a defiance against God. And secondly, the second thing I'll say is every sin and sinner deserves destruction. Beloved, I, I love you, but this is true. This is true. I don't need, I really don't need to list examples of 21st century sin for us. You are quite bright. And indeed, we all know what filth comes out of our mouths, what dross sloshes around in our minds, what vile things our hands can do. We can look back on our past and see our sin kind of like pockmarks on our very lives. We are all culprits in the great rebellion against God. John Milton puts it this way in his, in his Paradise Lost. He says, For still they, people knew and ought to have remembered the high injunction, the high high command not to taste that fruit, not to sin. But whoever tempted, which they not obeying incurred, they brought upon themselves the penalty and manifold in sin deserved to fall. Just like the Israelites, sinners, and that's us, We, too, deserve destruction. But that's not what we find here in this passage, is it? Let's uh, continue reading at verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom 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 you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn, Lord, from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on, do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them. 
and it will be their inheritance forever. And stop there and, and just say that, notice how Moses seeks God's favor. I don't want to make much of Moses, but it's so wonderful how he literally goes before the, this God of the universe on behalf of these sinful people. Moses mediates, he, he goes between God and those sinful people and says, God, wait, hold on, hold your holy fire, just hold, just hold a minute. And then he gives them three reasons why God shouldn't destroy them. First, he says, why should your anger burn against them? You, 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 you displayed such great power and might when you brought your people up, up out of Egypt. Why, should, why go back on it now? Secondly, he says, this is going to give those Egyptians the wrong idea. They would think you had an evil intent when you brought these people out of Egypt. Instead of seeing you as a loving God, I know you're a loving God, protective God, a God who is jealous for his own people like a husband for his wife, these Egyptians will see you as evil instead of holy, mean-spirited instead of good. And lastly, Moses says, God, do not forget your promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel. Lord, remember how you promised to make them as numerous as the stars. Remember your covenant. And when Moses is done speaking, when he is done pleading with the Almighty God, we read this, verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the the disaster he had threatened. I'll read it one more time. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Friends, I want you to notice just one word. It struck me as just a fabulous word here. It's the word his. It's the word his in verse 14. Because you see throughout these whole 14 verses, God has said to Moses, God has said, Moses, these, these people, these are your people you brought out, out of Egypt. And then, and then uh, Moses turns to God and says, God, these are your, don't bring disaster on your people who you brought out of Egypt. And it's kind of like, like a married couple embarrassed over the antics of their child. Dear, your daughter just kicked Pastor Tony in the shins. I didn't even know he was going to be here, but he is. Your daughter just kicked Pastor Tony in the shins. Would you please just, well, honey, she's your daughter too, right? And they're both saying yours and yours and yours. But you see what happened in verse 14? You see the point? The Lord did not bring disaster on his people. And this is just the second thing. The last point I'll bring out. Though this idolatry, this worshiping of the golden calf is an occasion for God's justice, we have actually an opportunity for God's mercy. This is an opportunity for God's mercy. Don't you see that this wonderful, this wonderful place where God claims the sinful as his own? They're still sinful, and yet he says, okay. You are my people. But secondly, God relents and does not bring total disaster on his people. He doesn't. And so maybe we'd say, well, why not? God is well within his rights to actually destroy these people and start again with Moses, as he said he might do. The the reason is because, as Paul says, God is patient. Paul says in 
Romans 3, God shows his forbearance, his tolerance by leaving the sins committed beforehand unpunished, even though the Israelites are sinners and they will sin again. He leaves it unpunished even though they'll sin again. But if we are logical and, and fair creatures, so we, our first question is, how can this be? Okay, it's not good parenting. I'm not, I don't know, I'm not, a, I'm not a parent, but it wouldn't make sense to be a great parent to just forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, and forgive without, without bringing to mind or disciplining or punishment. How can this be? I mean, didn't we just say that God must punish sin? And before we go on, before we go on let us not think that this is just a marvelous story that happened thousands of years ago and has nothing to do with us. That's a lie. It has everything to do with you, Ivan Ress. It has everything to do with Granville and Grand Rapids and West Michigan. It has everything because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul. And therefore, just like the Israelites... Ben Gandy and Lindsay and Pastor Tony, we all deserve to be laid low in judgment because the righteousness and holiness of God cannot simply overlook sin. He can't, right? But just like in this passage, what do we find? We are not destroyed, are we? In my devotions, I read this this morning. Because of the Lord's great love, says the writer of Lamentation. We are, we are not consumed. So our second question has to be, since we're not consumed, where is the justice of God met so that somehow we receive mercy? Where is the grace of God offered so that sinners may escape God's anger and destruction? Where do we look for that? Of course, friends, it is in the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. God's Son literally went between us and his Father and said, Stop, relent, don't, don't let your anger burn. I, I will take the judgment. Lord, have mercy. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of atonement, as, as a person who takes the punishment sinners deserve, as this wonderful God sent whipping boy, if you will. God presented him so that as, sh- as he shed his blood on his cross, God can once again call us his people. For the wages of sin is death, says Paul, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus punished instead of these Israelites, Jesus punished instead of me, and Jesus punished instead of you. I mean, don't you see? I love this because in just one chapter of the Bible, in just one chapter we see a God of justice who is also a God of mercy. A God of power and potential wrath who is also a God who, who just stays his power and potential judgment. This is the God of the law who is also the God of grace. And we know this most completely, friends, most fully in Jesus Christ our Lord. This mercy is free for all who believe in him. I, I thought about talk, I, I, I could have talked about the idols in our lives, right? 
and especially during this time of year, how we need to be aware of how easily we worship him. But God put it on my heart to remind you again of what a marvelous, wonderful father he is. What a wonderful, wonderful God he is. So in closing, let me ask you, let me ask you, Christians, who do you know who needs to hear this good news? Who needs to know the grace of God? Is it that cousin that you're going to see soon who always wears the same horrendous Christmas sweater? Or is it, is it how about the grandparents or, or the stepmother or, or, or the great-grandkids? Is it that co-worker, right, that you'll see at the office party? Who needs, who, we know, who, who needs to hear the good news? And this year, Christmas is on a Sunday. What a wonderful opportunity to invite them to hear this wonderful good news. I'll also say that maybe you were wrestling with this passage. Maybe you just can't get this God of justice and God of mercy thing, and maybe it's new to you. Please, please come to talk to me after the service or talk to Sherry or any of the elders or, or deacons here because this is the best thing that we know. This is what we are truly thankful for. Because like I said, this is, this is free. This grace is free. It's better than any Black Friday deal. It's better than any super-duper Christmas sale. It is free. This, this act of grace is so free. It, this act of mercy is so free. And, and coming out of that, that weekend, a wonderful weekend of Thanksgiving, let's just stop again and thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. Thank God again for claiming you as his people. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, Father God, we praise you and we worship you and we thank you for the mercy that you show to us. Though we deserve wrath and judgment, Instead, you provide us mercy through the blood that is shed on Jesus Christ. For all who would believe, for all who would call in his name, you call your own. You call us your people. Father God, we have much to be thankful for, but we thank you especially for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And when we're going to stand, I'd ask you to stand and sing. I will sing.